1: Hi there, and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host Ian Cook, and today we're going to be talking about re engineering India, work, capital, and class in an offshore economy. The book is written by Carol Lepatia and is published by Oxford University Press in 2016. Carol is a professor in the School of Social Sciences at the National Institute of Advanced Studies in Bengaluru. How is India's burgeoning IT industry reshaping the country? What types of capital is IT attracting and what formations does it take? How are software engineers managed? What are their goals and aspirations? How are they perceived by their foreign clients? In her book, Carol tackles these questions and many more, drawing on extensive research in Bangalore, the large southern Indian metropolis that, of course, has led the IT buzz. And in doing so, the book explores the way capital, work and class are remade within what is supposedly a new India. It combines deep, rich and detailed accounts of life within what one informant calls software factories with a theoretical eclecticism and a real clear writing style and as such I think the book is a truly wonderful anthropological account of an offshore economy. I had the pleasure of speaking with Carol just a few moments before. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Carol to New Books in South Asian Studies. Let's dive straight into your book. So your book is about the IT industry and IT workers in Bangalore, sort of the metropolis in uh, one of the two metropolises in South India. So to borrow from your book's title for my first question, I want to ask you, in what way is IT re-engineering India?
0: Well, first of all, thank you for inviting me uh, to be on this podcast and to talk about my book. Um, so that's a bit of a tough question, because in a sense, the whole book is about the idea that the IT industry has, in fact, had a very major um, uh, economic and social impact on India's development. And so I guess in a sense, the title is a bit tongue-in-cheek, because my argument, as um, you'll see as we move along, is is uh, really that um, it's not really uh, changing or transforming India in the way in which it is often claimed. Um, but as a footnote to that, I just wanted to maybe tell a small story about the title, which is also quite revealing, which is that earlier the um, title I had for the book was something like Rebooting India or um, India Rebooted, um, because, of course, when we name books, we try to think of something clever and do some wordplay. Mm-hmm. But um, when my book was about to go to press, I suddenly opened my one of my news uh, portals, uh, one day, and found that Nandan Nilakani, who is one of the main, um, uh, highly visible, well-known IT industry leaders in Bangalore, had just published a book with exactly the same title, India, um, Rebooting India. Um, and of course, I'll, I'll come back to that maybe in a couple minutes, but the ways in which um, of course, IT industry leaders represent the software industry, and the ways in which academics look at it is quite different. Um, so I immediately panicked and I contacted the publisher and said, "We have to find a new name," and which is how we we landed up with this one. Um, but but my point here is that it's very interesting how um, there is this kind of um, recursive cycle of knowledge and representation that um, that runs around the software industry in India, so that. Um, it's possible for an IT leader and an academic sociologist to, to you know, dream up the same title. And I think that tells you a lot about the uh, symbolic uh, importance of the industry in India, which is um, really one of the main arguments of the book.
1: Mm-hmm. Wonderful, that's great. I'm going to talk uh, a lot about the book in depth, but before we get to the book itself, could you tell us first a little bit about yourself? What's your academic background and what brought you to researching this topic?
0: Um... Okay, I'm uh, an anthropologist by training and um, my original fieldwork, um, PhD research, was in India a long time ago. I had come to India from the U.S. to, to um, do my um, dissertation research, which was in um, in the southern Indian state of Andhra Pradesh. I was interested in the uh, impact of the Green Revolution because this was like in the... Um, Early nineteen eighties, and it was kind of a hot topic these in, in those days to talk about new technologies and agrarian change, and and the you know social impact of that. Um, so I have, I mean, that is how I really started doing research in India. I've worked on a whole lot of different things. I, I would say broadly, most of my work has been around questions of of um, the linkages between development. Um, uh, Class, capital, social transformations, um, um, which I look at in various ways and through various kinds of uh, field work. Um, the the uh, this particular book um, came out of a study of the software industry in Bangalore that I did along with my colleague A. R. Vasavi at the National Institute of Advanced Studies in Bangalore. Um, And so, as I say in my acknowledgement, um, the whole project, the idea for the project was really hers, and I give her full credit for that. I had um, just um, moved to Bangalore um, just prior to starting this work, and I wasn't very familiar with the context. But Vasavi um, grew up in Karnataka and partly in Bangalore, and she was, um, as a sociologist, very... um, aware of, of these very rapid changes that were happening in the city because of the rise of the software industry. And we we had met, and she told me, we really have to study this because there seems to be a whole new social category of people emerging around the industry, and so we, we should really do a study. Um, and, and that's how the whole thing um, started.
1: Wonderful. That's great. Now let's start talking about some of the chapters themselves. And chapter one, you have a, a really fascinating discussion about capital, which is actually one of the one of the concepts that you that you bring up in the subtitle of the book, and specifically something that you call software capital. So I was wondering, could you please tell us what software capital is and talk us through some of its different formations?
0: Okay, um, I'll try not to make it too long and complicated. Um, the idea, well, I really um, derived this idea directly from um, a book by um, Kaushik Sundarajan called Biocapital, uh, where he looks at the biotech industry in the U.S. as well as, as India, but the larger theoretical background is really um, a lot of discussions that have happened within anthropology over the years about the question of capital and capitalism itself and whether you know there's like one capitalism which arises at a particular point in time in in Western Europe and then you know spreads around the globe um, or are there multiple forms of it are there multiple capitalisms? Um, And there's been some interesting work in India also in recent years looking at um, different forms of agrarian capitalism, different regional capitalisms. I mean, one can debate whether it it makes sense to even talk about um, those different um, uh, regional economies in terms of capitalism. That's a whole debate in itself. But what I was really trying to get at with this idea of software capital was to um, make another kind of argument, which is that a lot of... um, Um, both popular discussion and academic work on the Indian IT industry has um, represented it as something which is kind of an outgrowth of global capitalism, right? So because the um, developed Western economies have moved from industrial to post-industrial to more globalized um, um, uh, formations and there's a lot of offshoring and and outsourcing of of, uh, production and services... Um, that somehow the Indian IT industry has grown up as a response to that. In other words, it's, it's an effect of globalization. It's an effect of global capital. Um, and um, my the work which I was doing on, on the software industry told me very quickly, but that that that's really not the whole story. So I wanted to um, emphasize, without getting into a kind of indigenous ar- argument, I wanted to emphasize the local origins of, of, of this particular industry, and that was one kind of a point. And secondly was to, to look at capital and capitalism as something more than just an economic system, that it also, different kinds of capitalisms have particular or different um, cultural forms to them, right? There are different groups who become leading uh, entrepreneurial or capitalist groups. Um, it takes different kinds of shapes, um, and so on. And so by using this term, I was trying to think through the question of, well, what is it about software, cap, uh, the software industry in India, which um, can we use it as an example to talk about the differences that which are there within capitalism? So within uh, software capital, I delineated three different types, which I called uh, national capital, multinational capital, and transnational capital. And I did that not just to um, be able to make distinctions between the different kinds of um, software companies which are there in Bangalore, which includes Indian, you know, homegrown Indian companies. It includes multinational companies which have set up their offshore centers in in Bangalore. And it also includes small startup companies. Um, And so these are three distinct kinds of organizations which have their own cultures and and, uh, ways of organizing the production process. Um, but to me they also represented different um, different forms in, in the ways in which uh, the Bangalore software industry links to its customers clients and um, 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 head offices, you could say, in other places. So I was trying to be able to figure out a way to make those distinctions and not just talk about it in terms, in a kind of traditional way of, say, distinguishing between domestic and and international capital, but to show that these different categories all had elements in them of the Indian, quote-unquote, and the global um, and this is also a theme that runs through the whole book is trying to get away from those distinctions because what you see when you really begin to look at the ways in which software companies are organized or the ways in which um, the industry relates to um, other places, to its clients and so on, that there's always a mix between um, kind of uh, locally oriented practices and and structures and more um, transnationally oriented um, um setups one could say mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. that's wonderful i think if if capital is, is is one of the concepts in the subtitle subtitle of the book and one is work so let's talk a little bit about workers because uh think chapters two three and four really really looks at workers in, in quite some detail and you have a nice quote in chapter three that comes from one of the software engineers and he says it companies are factories people go in and code goes out so i was wondering could you please tell us a little bit about the employment of it workers is, and if there's some specific way in which IT workers are managed.
0: Yeah, so this is really um, the question of labor and work, um, and the IT workforce is really the core of the book, Um, and that's why I've devoted um, really three chapters to that. Um, Chapter two is about how the IT workforce has been assembled, so how are workers recruited, Um, how are they trained, how are they then deployed, Um, uh, how do they find jobs, and so on. Um, and, of course, I think um, your listeners will know that, that India does have a large IT workforce, although, of course, compared to the overall population and workforce, it's very small. There's still only around 3 million people. And yet it, does, it has provided a very um, a major avenue of employment for a lot of educated young people, um, primarily pe- um, those who have done engineering degrees. Um, So I was interested in that whole um, process through which um, young people get into engineering college and then get recruited to companies and how they are then shaped into, um, in a sense, globally uh, appropriate um, IT professionals, as they are called. Um, So that's one part of it. But um, I should maybe back up for a minute and say that when Vasavi and I were um, conceptualizing the project, our idea really initially was not to look at um, the labor process, not to look at software organizations, not to even, we weren't, we didn't have any questions about work in our minds. Um, our idea was really to kind of assemble a, a large sample. We were planning to interview around 500 software engineers and and to really understand more about the changes in their lifestyle and their attitudes and that kind of thing that, you know, thinking of them as a new segment of the, of the so-called new middle class. Um, but in order to contact um, that many people, we had to approach companies. We didn't know else how, how else to get that that um, cohort, and so we spent a lot of time contacting companies. You know, going and talking to HR managers, other kinds of managers, getting permission. You know, setting up interviews, and we did actually end up doing the survey, although it was never anywhere near the 500 sample that we wanted, since it was so difficult to get access. Um, But because I kept going, myself and and other team members, we kept going to these companies, to these offices, um, trying to do these interviews. Um, In the course of just hanging around in these workplaces for a lot of time, I became very interested in the question of work itself. So the project really started veering off in this other direction, which is why in the end, I really was focusing on the nature of labor, the nature of these organizations, how actually the software development process works, what is the um, position of Indian outsourcing companies in this larger global value chain of, of, of IT it services and software production. Um, and then within that, I, I became interested, interested in questions about the labor process and, and how actually um, that is being managed and controlled, right? So um, there's a whole lot of different things that, that I ended up looking at with this. Um, and obviously, you know, even in, in traditional labor sociology, um, the question of, of, you know, what makes workers work is very central. I mean, th- that is a major question of organizational theory also is how do you extract value from the labor of workers? Um, in this case, it, it's again a very complicated system. On the one hand, what you have is what has been called by others large software factories, um, and and that is something which is not specific to India. It's it's something which you see across the world in the IT industry, where the production of software and software packages has become a kind of an assembly line process, um, which in which um, projects are broken up into small bits and divided among many individuals and teams. And it's possible to kind of work on it as an assembly line where you know different people do different, bit, different bits of it and it gets put back together later. Um, the whole outsourcing phenomenon began because then be, once that kind of a process had been established, it was possible to break it up and, and do different parts of it in different locations. And that is actually the basis of the whole IT um, outsourcing offshoring model where they are able to use, for example, the entire twenty-four hours of, of the day by moving work from one site to another, as you know, across different time zones, and um, and also dividing the work into different kinds of work according to the skills and and capacities of different um, development centers. Um, so that is why that comment came that, you know, it's like a factory and, you know, people go in and code go out. And there was a sense, I found that, that, that remark really interesting because it really encapsulated the ways in which I, as, an, as a sociologist, looked at the process. But, of course, my understanding of that process came from the people we talked to. Many of whom really felt that they were just really like that cogs in the wheel, that they're not doing very creative or interesting work, that they are just there to write code, and you know they're doing so within a very kind of um, routinized, uh, rationalized work process, and so on. So I documented, we we documented a lot of um, both the process and the ways in which people responded to that, um, and the reason, one of the reasons why why that is the way in which um, software production is is understood in India is because it's a fact that even I think even today, um, what what gets outsourced to to companies in India by and large is what's called low end work. So within the whole software production cycle, there there is you know kind of more so called high end creative. Difficult work, which is done by um, software architects and and people like that, and then there's the very routine, boring work of coding, um, uh, code checking, um, software testing, etc., which frankly can be done by anyone with a, with some amount of training. It's it's not as highly skilled work. So um, so there is this 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 kind of dissatisfaction that that runs through a lot of the IT workforce that. You know they're not really doing very challenging work, and it's um, it, it's kind of this very routinized, factory, dead end kind of a job. But at the, the the contradiction here is that at the same time, these people are highly paid compared to anyone else in a similar kind of a job in India. And so, because they're well paid, and because they're working in these these kind of globalized, um, high tech workspaces, they you know the the job itself has acquired a certain kind of a. Um, social prestige, which doesn't really accord with the nature of the work, and that's one of the contradictions. I also try to um, look at um, when in, in the chapter on class formation. But um, just to go back to the question of, of the work process. So on the one hand, you have this kind of um, super rationalized, mechanistic work work cycle that, that that they're stuck in. On the other hand, um, what struck me. And which it took me a long time to puzzle through when I was trying to figure out how this whole thing works, is that when you talk to HR managers, you talk to people in the industry, they always say, "Oh, we have very um, you know uh, flexible, open-ended, non-hierarchical, flat organizations. We don't um, you know we don't force people to work in a particular way. It's all very open and free." Um, and um, and because we have this kind of a very flexible work culture, we're very different from other kinds of organizations in India. Um, and I kept hearing this, and I in the beginning I probably thought, well, that's interesting, and I, I just took it at face value. Um, and the fact is that when I started digging into it, of course, there is a lot in the ways in which software organizations are um, managed, which does um, derive from what's been called the new management ideology of soft capitalism in the West, which is all about um, not managing workers from top down, but, but letting them, you know, in a sense, training them to become self-managing entrepreneurial workers, that, you know, you should take ownership of your work, then you should be proactive, and then you should be responsible for completing your work without having, you know, a manager breathing down your neck. That is, that is the kind of new management mantra, new so-called new age management, which is very popular in the West and um, which has now come into India mainly through the software industry, so what I've tried to do in the book is is to understand how these two systems have been married together. how can you have this really um, highly structured um, 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 factory type of uh, software production process, where engineers are made to really—I mean—they're really very closely monitored, and every unit of effort and every unit of time and every you know line of code is being constantly measured, counted, and assessed. You know, just like in the old Fordist factory. And uh, on the other hand. They're all the time being told that oh, you're an autonomous worker, and you know you can manage your own workflow, and um, and and things like that. So the, the those two chapters, three and four, are really about these organisational systems through which um, labour is managed, through which value is extracted from the from the work of of software engineers.
1: Mm-hmm. Wonderful, and and I should mention that uh, not that this one quote that I happened to pull out. it's actually mm-hmm. lots of um, lots of really interesting quotes from the from the IT workers and it's really nice that the book makes use of the book length format to really include like long extracts from from the interviews and um, yeah and they're especially they're quite they're very articulate and very reflexive about their about their position this is and some of them are very witty and sardonic as well which is which is which is really nice so we just touched a little bit about the sort of the global nature of the process and this also involves Indian IT workers coming into contact a lot with foreign clients, either abroad or sometimes also in India. So I was wondering how are Indian techies, as they're called, how are they perceived by those outside India? And do the companies do anything to prepare the Indian workers for when they go outside or for when they meet foreign clients?
0: Yeah, so that, that question is very important because I think one of the one of the key arguments I try to make in the book is that in, in this kind of a um, you know, transnational work setup where teams of Indian engineers sitting in in India or Bangalore are working really um, in real time with clients or colleagues or other teams located in other places like in Europe or the U.S., um, that um, one of the main um, problems, what is posed as a problem by managers, um, is the problem of culture and cultural difference. Um, and I, I was really struck when I started um, spending time in these organizations to the extent to which talk about culture was always present. Um, and as an anthropologist, of course, my ears poked up. I was very interested in this is how do how are people talking about culture and, and what are they doing with this talk? Um, so one of the things that we did, um, um, in the study, which i, I didn 't mention earlier, which is really important, apart from interviewing people and kind of hanging around in these places as much as we could, we, we observed a lot of training programs um, and This was the site that I found the most in a sense ethnographic site of, of this whole um, project. Um, the fact that these these um, young software engineers are put through a lot of training programs. Some of the training, of course, is technical. It's about the work they have to do, and, and we didn't really bother much with those because I wouldn't have been able to follow anything. But I was very interested in what is called soft soft skills training. And as many listeners would know, soft skills is, is like, again, this big mantra in, in management, contemporary management thinking in the U.S. and other countries. Um, and it's really all about this idea that... Um, The employee, whether that person is, you know, working in a very high-level job, like as an architect or even as a doctor, say, or in a low-level, say, you know, a shop service kind of a job, that what you really need um, to perform your work these days is, is, is soft skills like your demeanor, the way in which you present yourself, communication skills, the way in which you talk to the customer. These are all things which are seen as as very crucial to to the production of value. Um, So in the case of of the Indian software industry, a lot of the soft skills training that was done was um, communication skills because there was this perception that, um, Indian software engineers are very good at their technical stuff. They're really good at, at learning new technologies and doing coding and doing whatever they have to do. But they're very poor in communication. And we heard this all the time. Uh, again, my ears perked up. What does it mean when they're saying? Does it mean that there's a language barrier? Does it mean that there's some you know different cultural communication style, which is creating a problem when they talk to the Americans or the Brits? And so we started, we observed quite a few of these training programs and also talked to various people about this. Um, And what it really came down to, um, to cut a long story short, is the argument I began to think about was that um, um, the trope of culture becomes a mechanism through which. Um, workers are managed in these kind of cross cultural or trans, transnational work situations. So, what I saw, and, and we had the opportunity, and we had several, I have several case studies in the book where I could talk to team members um, in India, team members um, abroad, managers, um, say foreign managers in other places, and I could talk to, to various people within these so called virtual teams. Um, And and what you would get, not surprisingly, is a very different story from people sitting in different positions about a problem that occurred or a crisis which they had in the project. And when when there was a problem, it was always blamed on culture, you know, and and in a sense, um, the, the managers and the software engineers were being taught to think this way. Because it, it is being presented to them by soft skills trainers as a way in which to understand and work through problems. So if, if for example, you're, you're, I'm a British manager and you're my Indian software engineer, and I tell you this has to be done by this time, and you say, yeah, yeah, I'll do it, but ultimately you don't do it. Right. So then what you're told is, well, this is an Indian cultural trait that, you know, it's very impolite to say no. So they always say yes, even if they know they can't finish the job. And then the next part of the training is about teaching people how to overcome or, to, you know, by understanding the cultural difference, you can then learn how to communicate better. So all of that that kind of discourse became really fascinating to me because it's not just about learning um, teaching people how to work in a multicultural work environment is really about creating new kinds of subjects. It's about making people think about themselves in new ways, because now Indian, young uh, Indian IT professionals are being trained to think about themselves as Indians in a way in which they probably never have done not that they don't think about Indian culture, but the way in which the culture is being presented to them is, is very odd. And in fact, some of the dialogues we had with people were really interesting, where people would actually challenge um, <clears throat> the training person, you know, who would say, oh, Indian cultures like this and, you know, French cultures like that. And they would say, you know, what are you talking about? This makes no sense. But nonetheless, I think um, that it's the circulation of ideas about culture which really weaves together a lot of the work experiences that people have because even if, um, although most software engineers do have a chance to go and work abroad for some period of time and they, they travel a lot, even when they're sitting in Bangalore, they're also all the time connected to um, you know, colleagues and, and managers and teams and other places. And so that that kind of an environment is not really creating what you know the older theories of globalization would tell you, which is about creating a kind of a new you know whatever cosmopolitan or global culture um, within corporations it 's really creating a lot of difference but in a very um, structured and a very um, odd kind of a way mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I, I was interested in in, in, in how um, then software engineers absorb these ideas of cultural difference, as well as how do they absorb and engage with the other kinds of soft skills that they are taught, say communication or time management. Because what, what that kind of soft skills training is doing is also teaching you how to be a particular kind of a person. And it's telling you that, you know, if you can become this kind of a person, not only can you manage your work better, you can manage your life better. So the question that arises then is, is, is this something that, that actually does um, um, you know shape the subjectivities and or the identities of, of these employees or is it something that just rides on the surface that they you know conform to certain expectations at work but at home they're they're you know, remain something else and and by the way this this kind of question you know is something which is not new in indian sociology way back in the 60s when people were looking at the new industries there was a lot of discussion of you know tradition and modernity does working in a modern industry change um, you know the the um, the whatever the the social uh, profile or, or personality of workers in a fundamental way, or do they make a split between their Indian culture and the modern workplace? In a sense, you know these ideas are still there, but they're being reinvented through this kind of um, through the the articulations of trainers and managers and and all kinds of people within the industry itself. <laughs>
1: Thank you. I think maybe my favourite ethnographic vignettes from the book are, are those during the the training session. I think there's somebody you call Megan who uh, has some very interesting, uh, yeah, very interesting opinions and very and very interesting conversations with the people she's trying to train. Um, so the the final big concept we need to talk about, sort of been drifting around in the background, and now we should address it, is is that of class. <coughs> Now, when um, I suppose it's a paradox because every time uh, every time I meet an Indian techie, they're usually elite and they're usually high caste Brahmin. I mean, at the same time, is it's the IT industry is held up as being this sort of great um, great vehicle for social mobility in India. So, so which is it? Is it is it a vehicle for social mobility or is it just you know social reproduction? The same the same elite Brahmins filling up the best jobs in the country.
0: Uh, that's a good question, and I don't think it really can be answered by anyone, you know, mainly because we don't really have the data. I mean, we tried, and, and other researchers have tried very hard to get data from software companies that would really give us the social background of all these employees so we could very easily tell, like, you know, what do they come from, the middle class or elite? Are they high caste, etc.? The only kind of data they ever gave us was gender breakdown. Um, So we tried to extrapolate a little bit of information from the small survey we did and from other studies which are out there, and our finding showed exactly the same thing, what everyone seems to um, believe, although software companies like to deny it, which is that vast majority are from the upper caste. They do come from middle class background, and by middle class, we defined it in terms of having parents who were also educated and working in middle-class jobs. And so that means they already had a certain kind of cultural capital, educational background, um, which enabled them to to get into these jobs and, and into this industry. Um, and so early on, very soon after the project was finished, I wrote a paper in which I made this argument very strongly. And I basically said that... Um, the IT industry is not really bringing about any kind of new opportunities of social mobility for people from other classes. It's really just middle class reproducing itself, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and and I, I make that argument also to some extent in the book. But I think when I started looking at my at my material more closely and also doing a bit more work after that particular project was over, um, especially where I'm working now in, in coastal Andra, which is one of the main um, regions of India, which has produced a lot of software engineers. Um, here, one does find different pathways, and it is it is those pathways of mobility that I find very interesting now to think about. Um, so even though the majority of people are probably from urban, middle-class, educated families, and because you know and they, they were able to then use that background to get into good engineering colleges and, and from there get into decent IT jobs... Um, there's another pathway through which people from rural areas, people from small towns, people who maybe didn't have English medium education um, but you know, and so are not very comfortable with English, but were able to get into engineering college and from there into these jobs. For them, it is a pathway of mobility, not necessarily in terms of economic mobility, because they may come from families who are well off. Um, there may be, you know, land owning families in, in in the rural setup who have plenty of money, but what they are lacking is the cultural capital of the middle class, right? Um, but they are able to to get into this this um, uh, into the IT industry because of the engineering background. And in fact, what does, what one finds um, when I started really taking apart my data more closely was that even within the IT workforce, there is a segmentation. And so at the very bottom of the heap, the kind of routine, ordinary coders, what they call them, who who can do technical work but are not good at so-called client-facing roles because their English is not good enough, or their, you know, whole cultural um, style is somehow not sufficiently cosmopolitan. Um, but they are very good for these other kinds of jobs, and so you find a segment of the industry of people who have that background. Um, and then there's a whole other segment of people who are kind of from ordinary middle class families who who can m- maybe at the next at the next level. And at the highest level, very strikingly. Every single person we we interviewed who was like a CEO or some other very top executive... The, all these people were from the IITs, or, which are the Indian Institute of Technology, which are the premier engineering colleges, institutions in India, which produces the you know, cream of, of, of people with an engineering background, majority of whom go to the U.S. and get good jobs. Very often they have been to the U.S. where they built a career, and now they've been cycled back to India to head the Indian operations of some company. So the stratification in the workforce also, in a sense, reflects class stratification. But I just want to say that, that, of course, class structure in India is a highly complicated question. We can't just say that, you know, there are these classes, A, B, C, D, E, because obviously, you know, it's hard to, to link up the different criteria. So as I mentioned, there could be people from kind of provincial um, places who are um, wealthier, in terms of absolute money or property than than an ordinary middle-class urban family. And yet what they are lacking is the cultural capital of the middle class. And this is why I I spend a lot of time in that sixth chapter um, talking about the middle class, because, and many other people have talked about the middle class in India, the, the new middle class which has supposedly emerged after liberalization and so on. But I think it's an important category because I think by looking at the middle class we can really understand um, um, dimensions of power and and the, the reproduction of inequality in the Indian context which does not simply have to do with more structure, structuralist approaches to class which have to do with capital and labor and property etc. Because in India it's really other kinds of, of, of um, capital that you need to, to make it um, Uh, to mobilize yourself or to, to kind of maintain a particular um, social status in in the society. So it is that um, it is the idea of the middle class that I try to unpack in relation to the IT industry um, and, and the ways in which it has brought about some kinds of changes in the Indian context.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to conclude our discussion about the book now. I hope uh, Everyone who's been listening has uh, has got a lot out of it. I think there's lots of people not only interested in, in South Asia, but also the anthropology, the sociology of work, globalisation, and, and and also, of course, of, of, of capital as well. So I hope lots of people check out the book. But usually on these uh, podcasts, we ask our authors now that this book is out, what are what are your you know current and future projects that you're working on?
0: Oh, well, as I mentioned, um, I, I have been doing some work in in Andhra Pradesh, which is a southern Indian state for the last um, two or three years, um, starting with a project that we had that we called Provincial Globalization, which was looking at um, migration and transnational ties in regional towns. Um, So for that, I started going to um, a a regional town called Vijayawada and that's where I got back in touch with with some of the villages there, um, where... This is a region that has a very high rate of out-migration, primarily through the IT route. A lot of software engineers have come out of engineering colleges in that region and have landed up either in places like Bangalore or Hyderabad or even in the US. So it was very striking that if you go to even to the villages there, you know a lot of the families you meet, at least those who have some amount of land and and um, capital, they all have kids who are sitting in the US or sitting in, in Bangalore. So that's why I became again interested in this question of mobility, that there is a lot of mobility happening. It's just that we're not really sure exactly how to map it. Mm-hmm. And of course, for all you know, number of people who are able to acquire some education or some uh, a good IT job and get mobilized, there are a whole lot of people who are also left behind. So I've been doing some work on this question of, of um, mobility and immobility and its relation to um, different forms of inequality. Um, yeah, and I'm also interested in the question of urban development. So right now I've been, I've been last couple of years I've been looking at the development of a new capital city in Andhra Pradesh, which is called Amaravati, and I've been looking at the ways in which um, that city is being imagined and built. Um, what does it tell us about the future of development in that particular state and more broadly in post-reform India?
1: Mm-hmm. Wonderful, they both sound like great projects we look forward to reading the, the fruits of those um, sometime soon there's nothing more for me to do apart from to thank you very much for coming on New Books in South Asian Studies it's been a real pleasure to talk with you about your book today
0: Thank you Thanks
1: so much for listening to the New Books in South Asian Studies podcast I've been your host Ian Cook and today we've been talking about Reengineering India by Carol Apadia. I really hope you enjoyed our discussion today. I absolutely loved the book and I really enjoyed speaking with Carol. And I hope you're going to listen again next time. ta da